I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to our webpage at ithinkthereforeifan.com. That's all one word. Click on the link that says donate and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss Westworld, Her, Ex Machina, Star Wars, Star Trek The Next Generation, Lost in Space, The Jetsons, Avengers Age of Ultron, and Breaking Bad. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. This week's episode is about artificial intelligence in pop culture. This is a pretty popular topic right now. Yeah, and timely as well. Um, by my calculations, we have maybe just a couple more years to discuss things like this um, before our evil artificially intelligent overlords um, take over and, and drive us all to ah. extinction. Right. So what? Uh, maybe. <laughs> what TV shows and uh, other elements of pop culture feature artificial intelligence right now? Westworld. No Westworld. Worry. Yep. Um, there's interesting issues explored in. Uh, lost in space. Right, right. And we'll be talking about that. Um, well, one show that does really well with this kind of thing, or just kind of with technology in general, but there's some artificial intelligence going on, if I recall correctly, is uh, Black Mirror. Right, right. <laughs> um, in multiple episodes. Um, and then, of course, Mr. Robot seems like it's about artificial intelligence. Just because of the name? Yeah. But, <laughs> it really doesn't. But, but in fact, it, it's not. Although there's some technology there. Well, we might as well start with some big questions about AI, right? So um, if we're talking about artificial intelligence, then by intelligence, we, you know, we, we don't just mean has the ability to process or do things like that, right? Nobody thinks that their their calculator, for example, is intelligent. There's kind of an odd trend going on right now. I've noticed there's a commercial that talks about artificial intelligence and all their, you know, I can't remember what company it is, but like all their products that have implemented artificial intelligence. And I'm just like, we're using this term very loosely right now, uh, just for like any sort of remarkable technology. Right, so when, so when we say... Um, artificial intelligence, we want something that that has probably something like consciousness, right? And if it doesn't have consciousness, there's got to be some other kind of intelligence, maybe that's sort of equally impressive. It, it could be a very different um, sort of thing altogether, but it, it's not just the you know mere processing of information in a way that follows some rote mechanical procedure. Do you have something in particular in mind? I'd always thought of it as the most... When I think about artificial intelligence, the consciousness question is sort of foremost in my mind because I think that's the stage at which we've got to start considering whether the beings we're dealing with are persons. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've got something kind of in mind. So early um, discussion about AI 
sort of centered around the idea that you know we should we should develop artificial intelligence because that will tell us a lot about ourselves mm -hmm. and, and so it was thought that you know that that the models for um, AI were they to be successful would involve beings that that experience something like consciousness and, and very quickly people realized um, you wouldn't necessarily have to have consciousness mm. in order to have intelligence as long as you're doing things. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of the criteria for something being artificially intelligent later. But as long as they're doing some of those things, passing the various tests and whatnot, um, then that might be sufficient for AI. But we're, we're particularly interested and always have been in AI that, that experiences consciousness. So um, what is consciousness? Well, we won't settle that here. <laughs> Let me just tip my hand. Um, there's a, a lot of um, sort of um, healthy philosophical debate about what consciousness amounts to. Um, some people even wonder if we have it, right? There's, there's you know, all sorts of, of theorists that worry that the things that we point to um, when we talk about our consciousness, such as qualia, right? The qualitative feel of our mental states is, is something that, that in fact doesn't exist. So there's a... a platitude that I've, that I've heard many times. I've heard David Chalmers say this in interviews and others. Um, I think John Searle said it at one radio program I, I heard him speak at. And that's this idea that, you know, um, we're, we're very aware of our own consciousness, right? Because we constantly experience it. I mean, I guess if you went into a coma or something, you might not. But it's you know, if you, you wonder, you know, do we have consciousness? It's this thing that you're basically confronted with from the moment you're born until you're dead, right? You're, you're aware that you have thoughts and feelings and that things seem certain ways, um, right? It's, it's sort of unavoidable. So what, what is that stuff? Um, right. Well, it's, it's mental states, um, partially, right? Certain kinds of, of mental states. And there's lots of different ways that those get cashed out, right? So some theories um, attempt to cash out mental states in terms of stuff. Is it physical stuff, right? Is the mind just the brain? Is it non-physical stuff? Is it something like an immaterial soul, right? The, the ghost in the machine, um, as they sometimes say. So um, other theories want to get away from the stuff type um, definitions of, of mental states and rather focus on um, the way that they function, right? The functional roles that they play or perhaps the, the ways in which um, they cause us to behave, right? So early functionalist theories were, were behaviorist type theories. And that stems more than anything from just an inability to, um, in philosophical terms, define things sort of beyond our experience, right? Certain presuppositions in the early 20th century said, um, you know, we, we should only talk about things that are sort of empirically verifiable. So these mysterious mental states were the kinds of things that, at least for, for some views, um, were kind of philosophically off limits. But we could verify things like individuals' behavior and so forth. Okay, so... Um, do we have to know that something, um, or do we have to know exactly what consciousness is to determine whether something 
is conscious. And I think that the Chalmers Searle quote that I mentioned earlier clearly answers that question um, in the negative, right? Um, so, you know, if, if philosophers or scientists or just even laypersons have no idea what consciousness is at, at some point in um, the, the study of consciousness, but are aware of their own consciousness, right? This, this sort of unavoidable thing, right? The thing, thing that you're always experiencing, then that's sufficient to know, at least in our own case, that we experience something like consciousness. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about souls? Are we talking about the, the effects of brains? Are we talking about um, ways of behaving or ways our brains function? Um, any of those could be on the right track. Um, the right answer could be sort of some combination of those type views. Um, but ultimately, it's not essential to sort that out um, to know that something has consciousness. One thing it's important to keep in mind when we're trying to determine whether machines do or could ever have consciousness is that um, we can't really... There's a problem for whether we can ever really know that other human beings have consciousness. This is what philosophers call the problem of other minds. Right, right. So the best that I can do to tell that you, for example, are conscious is to observe your behaviors and note that they're very similar to my own behaviors. I attribute consciousness to myself in my own case. Uh, for this reason that you said before, it seems like consciousness is the kind of thing that I'm constantly experiencing. Mm -hmm. And since you're behaving your behavior is sufficiently similar to mine, it seems justified to attribute consciousness to you as well. So the the problem of other minds, or the and the problem of attributing consciousness to a thing, is a, a problem not just for machines, but for any other conscious being. Right. Right. So with human to human, we've, we've got a couple things going for us, right? So I can look inward um, and recognize that I'm a conscious being. I'm aware of my mental states, the way things seem to me and the, the way things look. And I can reflect on that and all that. Um, and I can extend that to you, like you said, on the basis of your behavior. But I have this thing I can buttress it with and say, um, I don't have any reason to think that we would be fundamentally different, right? We have similar brains, we have similar nervous systems, mm -hmm. we have similar diets, um, you know, we react in the exact same ways to the same kinds of things, right? Someone throws a rock at either of our heads and we flinch or duck or, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, you step on a Lego. Fortunately, our son's outgrown that, mm -hmm. um, but it was a daily occurrence for years. Right, you go scream or you say mm -hmm. ow or you, you shriek mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing. But when we go to attribute it to to um, you know non-human um, things and even farther removed um, things that you know that are not biological, right, inorganic things, um, then you don't have that that extra step. Um, so it, it, it becomes trickier. So let, let's talk about some of the, the robots um, that we see or the artificially intelligent creatures in pop culture. So like the paradigm case of AI, one of them at least, has to be data from Star Trek. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to say, well, data, you know, almost by stipulation is, is an awful lot like us. Um, although he doesn't experience emotions and that's by stipulation as, as well, right? They didn't, his creator didn't give um, Data the emotion chip, although his brother Lore 
got it. And there was one episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Data had it and people would tell him jokes and he would be cracking up and all mm-hmm. of that. So um, on the basis of his behavior, it's, it's pretty easy to say um, he seems to have some kind of you know, awareness of his external environment and his own states because he'll talk about them. He'll reflect. He'll say, oh, I felt this way or I felt that way or I, I thought this or I thought that. Um, and that he doesn't exhibit certain other kinds of behavior. Um, doesn't feel sadness, doesn't, doesn't um, laugh at things for the most part. And then you say, oh, well, that's a, a part of his consciousness that he's missing. Okay. Yeah, Westworld, um, there's some interesting cases there, right? Because by stipulation, you know, these are all very sophisticated machines. And, you know, as the, the plot of the show unfolds, it's clear that um, the, the creators of the, um, the robots in Westworld had intended um, some of them to attain consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but not all. And it, and it looks like that's happening in some cases. So, um, you know, some are, are just sort of shells of, you know, machines. Um, but, but others pretty clearly are, are feeling things and feeling things very deeply. Um, I, I think it's interesting here, just in the past two examples that you gave, um, of how in our portrayals of artificial intelligence in pop culture... Uh, one of the the cues, uh, which kind of serves as a point where we might start thinking, this being has consciousness is emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could. So there's. It seems like there's something about consciousness, at least in pop culture, that oh, we know something's conscious, not just if it's sort of self-aware, but if it's having certain sorts of. It's not just in taking in information. It's also responding to the information mm-hmm. that it's taking in. Right, right. And then emotions are, are useful for making those kinds of determinations because they really stand out, right? So mm-hmm. um, somebody pensively pondering um, something might be sort of indistinguishable from someone that's just completely zoned out or doesn't have consciousness. Yeah. But right. when when people are, are exhibiting sort of anger or, you know, joy or something like that... Um, that I think gives us, you know, more of what we need for that inductive argument where we say, aha, there's, there's some consciousness going on there. Okay, um, one interesting case is the robot from Lost. Oh, we'll point out. Lost so, in space. Oh, yeah. Lost in space. Right. Um, we have there's, this note here and you just wrote Lost. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there's probably a robot in Lost, but it, it just looks like the jungle or something because that's a really weird show. But, um, yeah, we have not seen Lost. Right, right, right. Uh, but from Lost in space. Right. Um, we were actually putting together a list of the artificial intelligence that you see in different television programs. And one thing that we noticed, because we were, we were trying to kind of create a spectrum where, oh, here's, here's kind of the robot that you would say is the least, you know, nobody would say that it exhibits consciousness. And he, then here on the other side of the spectrum are like the, the characters from Westworld and stuff like that. Um, and... I, one thing I thought was noteworthy about how we engaged this topic is that there were no robots on the list that, or any that, at least that we found 
that don't. It's like we really like our robots to be conscious. We want them to be buddies. It's like this childhood fantasy of having a robot for a best friend. Right, right. Which is exactly what Will Robinson has mm-hmm. in Lost in Space. Um, yeah. yeah, and so there, you know, that's a pretty stoic robot most of the time. But there's mm-hmm. there's some hints, right? When he first sort of attaches himself to Will and then later to Dr. Smith, it, it's a, you know, almost a, okay, you saved me. I've got your back kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's it. I think it plays with our emotions a little bit because you wanted it, that connection is like you said, you saved my life, uh, and so you kind of want it to be a sense of loyalty and affection mm-hmm. uh, that that the robot experiences toward Will because he saved his life, mm-hmm. rather than just like sort of a a programmed imperative to follow blindly anybody who saves right your life that's the old sort of um, gilligan's island you rescue me now i have to be your personal slave <laughs> yeah <laughs> so just model, by rule right no, nobody's <laughs> nobody's programming that yeah. into their their robot right. um yeah so um to what extent do all these things have consciousness i mean they're like you're saying they're they're all you know, every time it seems like there's a robot in a movie or on television or anywhere, mm-hmm. it's just by stipulation. Okay, this thing's artificially intelligent. It's very intelligent. Um, does that mean it has consciousness, right? Again, it's possible that something could um, sort of be a, a really good thinker and be a, you know, take in data from its surroundings without um, sort of being aware that it does so. Um, but it... it Seems like in none of these examples is that the case, right? Um, yes, we've been talking about this. I really find that I find self-awareness to be the more interesting question. And maybe we'll talk about the moral implications, but maybe that's because I'm more interested in the moral questions. Right, um, right. So if, you know, we'll talk about a couple of tests for whether a machine exhibits intelligence. But for me, let's say that it meets that threshold. Okay, yeah, it exhibits what you'd call intelligence by that test if it isn't also if it doesn't also experience consciousness mm-hmm. i don't know how how interested i am although i'm sure that's great technologically speaking for uh, all sorts of advancements in culture and society but right right um so other sort of paradigm cases right um any of the droids in star wars um you know i i think are meant to um be self-aware, exhibit consciousness, have feelings, um, be artificially intelligent, all those things, right? Um, R2-D2 um, makes his sad noises and his happy noises, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't seem like that's a programmed mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, C-3PO always seems kind of sad to me, but mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably not what's going on there. But he, he does like exhibit great frustration um, and, and fear, right? Experiences fear. He seems frightened quite a bit of the time. Um, classic, um, Rosie from the Jetsons, um, she was just another one of the Jetsons, right? She was just made out of stuff, but about as smart as the rest of them. Um, there were episodes where they hurt her feelings and she went away to work for someone else and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. There are some interesting themes explored in what is maybe my favorite movie, which is Her, starring Joaquin Phoenix and oh, Scarlett yeah. Johansson. Uh, so... Scarlett Johansson's character, Samantha, is an operating system, 
right? And Joaquin, the whole premise of the movie is that Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his operating system. And what I think is really interesting about this example is that it illustrates that this, that this, on this model of consciousness, um, consciousness isn't uh, associated necessarily with any particular, we'll call it, we'll say hardware isn't, isn't partic isn't associated with any particular physical stuff. It's, it's, you know, it's not in that case, like Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his iPhone. That's not what you're supposed to believe. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to believe that he, he falls in love with his operating system, which could, uh, be instantiated on any device. Right. Right. Um, and then you sort of get this suggestion at the end that, that she, in, in a, she's kind of omnipresent. Mm -hmm. uh, you you get this with um, with Vision when when Jarvis becomes Vision in uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron, you get this similar sense, and I think the same is true with Ultron. I haven't seen it in a little while, but uh, the idea that if you had AI, like AI self aware AI, that that self aware AI would be omniscient. Essentially, pretty much to the extent that it's and omnipresent, because it, insofar as it could link up directly with the internet, mm -hmm. right? it, it, it's 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 its intelligence is it includes the content of the internet. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, here's a good example of that because at the end she leaves mm -hmm. to you know wherever the operating system is housed and just yeah. sort of goes off to join all the. Energy. Omnipresent. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even know that it's right to say that she leaves to go to where the operating system is housed. She's just sort of let loose. Yeah, no, she leaves where it's housed. And, oh, yeah. And okay. Yes, makes her way yeah. just into the universe mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. some, some sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, one other noteworthy example of AI in pop culture was in another movie that I thought was really good, uh, Ex Machina, uh, the character Ava. So... Uh, Basically, Ava is the the whole premise of the movie is that um, they're Ava is a robot that they're going to test for artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So, what kinds of tests might we employ then to determine whether we are dealing with intelligence in a machine? Right. So the the standard over the years has been the Turing test, right? And so, for those who don't know about the Turing test, um, the idea is um, somebody's asking questions um, of another person and a computer, right? And the other person and the computer are in, are in a different room and they're um, typing their response. And if at the end of the test, the, the interrogator can't tell which is which, the computer is said to pass the Turing test, right? Now, those the original test for determining whether something has um, artificial intelligence. And that does point to a kind of intelligence um, but it's it's not a very advanced artificial intelligence, right? It doesn't it doesn't take too much for something to um, to pass the Turing test, and some things that that would easily pass the Turing test are things that we think of as just you know um, not intelligent at all in the sense of um, having something like original thoughts, right? And and that's well short of of exhibiting consciousness. Um, so, you know, you could have a sufficiently sophisticated computer that, you know, you could um, program in the answer to, you know, one zillion questions and whatever it gets asked, it just, it, you know, gives that answer back and you 
you'd say, well, it passes the Turing test, but it's not very intelligent. Um, a better test is what's called the Lovelace test, right? So here we think that, that a machine is, um, exhibits genuine intelligence if it can meet three conditions, right? It produces some particular outcome um, and that that outcome wasn't produced as a result of some sort of fluke in the hardware, but rather it's repeatable that it produces that. And the designer or the team of designers of the machine can't explain how the outcome was produced, right? So if you know all the code that went into it, then that still wouldn't be enough to give you that, that produced outcome. And you would think, well, the machine must have thought of that on its own. It'd be probably useful here to highlight because we were talking about this earlier, that this is a way, if this is a, a test for artificial intelligence, if this is a test we should use, um, this would highlight a way in which a machine could be intelligent without necessarily being self-aware. Right. right? It passes right. this test. This isn't, this isn't, doesn't seem to be a test for self-awareness. Right. No, it's, it's, <laughs> so. it's, we're, we're calling it intelligence when there's, there's thought, which is why the, the um, cases in Westworld are so interesting, right? It's clear that some of them are getting consciousness, but there's a whole bunch of them that don't have consciousness or even some of the ones that, that have it prior to their getting consciousness um, satisfy the Lovelace test and the Turing test. And then there are some that, that you know might be so sophisticated that they beat the Turing test, but it wouldn't beat the Lovelace test. They're, they're just programmed really well. interesting set of questions pertaining to AI is what moral principles should guide our interactions with AI or with technology in general? Regardless of whether it's, it's sentient. So, so for example, mm-hmm. the other day I was mowing the lawn and I, um, I sort of got pissed off at the lawnmower mm-hmm. and um, I, I might have said some things to it that if it had feelings, it, it would have hurt them. <laughs> um, and in the event that no one was looking, there's some chance I kicked it. Um, so is, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? <laughs> well, I sometimes get uh, feel guilty when I am mean to Siri. S- Siri has it coming. Siri, Siri's horrible. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, I think we do have, there's a chance that we do have moral obligations, uh, even if we're dealing with technology that isn't sentient. I mean, um, we may have obligations to fellow our fellow creatures to treat technology in certain ways. So here's what I have in mind. Um, On Westworld, people engage in all sorts of behaviors toward these robots, like fantasy type behaviors. And, and some of those fantasies are pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and there's, it's no, it's an empirical question, of course, whether, and whether, um, taking out your aggressions on an object will diminish those aggressions or whether they'll make it, they'll intensify mm-hmm. them or make it more likely that you'll act out on them. Right. Certainly in the case of the man in black, right, throughout the, the various timelines, he just mm-hmm. got worse and worse and worse. And, yeah. You know, more motivated by some small set of obsessive de- desires than anything else. And he wasn't yeah. that way when we were introduced to him as William. Yeah, he seems like a good guy at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you might, I mean, a Westworld type situation, far from like just kind of 
being some sort of catharsis or something might be uh, just an opportunity to develop bad traits of character mm-hmm. by uh, practicing on robots. And so uh, we got to consider that first. Um, but again, like I said, that's an empirical question that you, you uh, it's not, it can't be really resolved philosophically. Is this a harm? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And probably not a one size fits all answer there anyway, right? Certain people yeah. are going to perhaps be made better by those sorts of experiences and other people are going to be made worse. Yeah. And issue by issue too. You know, if you're, de- what kind of uh, behavior are you practicing on the, on robots? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that, practicing some of that behavior, certain kinds of behavior may make you more likely to act out and others, it might quench your desire, depending on what behavior you're talking about. Um, you know, I, people will say this, people will frequently say this about video games, that video games motivate this or that behavior. And I don't think they've ever been able to really substantiate that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, and then another point, um, let's say that the, uh, that it is indeed the case that the, the technology you're dealing with, um, has consciousness. It doesn't follow from the fact that a being has consciousness that you have moral obligations to it. It may be that the consciousness has to be of a particular kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So back to, to Data and Star Trek, right? There was um, one episode of Star Trek The Next Generation in particular um, where someone from the Federation thought, boy, we could have a whole bunch of these type things if we took Data and disassembled them and analyzed it and saw mm-hmm. what put them together. And, you know, the, the crew of um, the Enterprise was, of course, all very opposed to this. They had a little trial. They talked about, you know, whether or not he had sort of um, personhood status and that this kind of thing could happen to him. Um, Data clearly had consciousness, but he was arguing the whole time, it doesn't matter to me. And right. said, we, yeah. we can't allow you to be harmed. Exactly. Like, From my point of view, it's not a harm. Right? Yeah. Just, he didn't, didn't view himself in such a way that he would consider being dismantled for research purposes a harm. In fact, he even agreed with the, the motives of it. Thought, you know, it's kind of a consequentialist thing. Ultimately, yeah, it'd be better if there were a whole bunch of of his kind, given that he serves a valuable purpose. Yeah. Um, what, one way of doing this, of, of carving up what kinds of consciousness we would have moral obligations to is in terms of what kinds of beings have interests. So, I, I mean, th- this is what they, you see all the time in the animal rights, uh, or I mean, maybe better put, animal welfare um, discussions, right? So Peter Singer, will, Peter Singer argues that um, when a being has interests, if a, if a being is of the type that can have interests, mm-hmm. then those interests deserve to be taken into consideration. Right, right. Um, and so kind of two points there. So one threshold is that the being has to have interests but then the things that you're that you're morally required to care about are their interests and so mm-hmm. in the case that you just described for example data doesn't he he's capable of having interests mm-hmm. but in a, in a sense but you know not being taken apart or whatever your example yeah, yeah. was isn't one of them so right right um yeah well there's a distinction between that doesn't seem to be in his interest oh, um sure but it's not an interest that, that he had, right, simultaneously. So you could say, you know, he actually had an interest in, in being, um, you know, 
part of whatever benefits the Federation the greatest amount. Um, and so you would say, well, so what's kind of strictly speaking in his interest is being disassembled. But you could look at him and say, if he exhibits something like personhood, mm-hmm. then whether he acknowledges it or not, it is in his interest to not be disassembled. So there's right. the interest that he has sort of consciously and what counts is in his interests. Yeah, I was thinking of the case uh, <clears throat> when I made that comment that like, um, let's say, you know, uh, you have a, a pet rabbit. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the rabbit has interests mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, it's sentient and it suffers and experiences uh, pain and pleasure mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and and I, I don't know much about the intelligence of rabbits in particular. I mm-hmm. just picked that animal. So uh, it has interests of other types, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if we... We shouldn't start stipulating that, you know, once something is the, ha- is the kind of thing that can have interests, that it has all sorts of interests, right? right so, right, like, right. you know, you might think that the the bunny rabbit would look really great in a little sweater or something, but, mm. <laughs> but I mean, that's not one of its interests. Right, right. And, so, and, and I don't mean interest in the sense that, and the, the people in the animal rights um, discipline don't, mean interest in the sense of, hmm, what do I find interesting? But rather, right. um, sort of what, what, what does the being behavior demonstrate is worthy of pursuit? Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. Yeah. So, uh, if there's some chance that we don't have moral obligations to beings that can't experience suffering or joy. Uh, and then there's this other kind of moral consideration that you might have in mind, which is like, oh, you need to respect the dignity of something. Mm-hmm. Right. This is uh, this more is where the, the lawnmower advocates get really pissed off at me because I <laughs> disrespected I, the dignity. Yeah, sorry. I, lawnmower. I, I'm a dignity disser. <laughs> but so it's interesting to consider whether um, you can violate the dignity of a thing that either doesn't have the concept of dignity or doesn't value dignity. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, to go back to your data case, I think. Um, maybe wouldn't take it to be undignified that he was being disassembled. Right, noble, right? Just quite the opposite. You know, here I am, you know, I'm a, a research being and I could provide greater research service doing this way and program that way. Um, that's what I ought to do. All right, let's mix things up a little bit with what is now seeming to be a regular feature and that's our, our interview with... Um, People on the street, um, although we, we don't actually go out onto the street. Um, so it's people on the telephone who may be on the street giving us their opinion on things. This week we asked um, Dr. Pat Lynn, Mike Frost, Gerard Garrett, and Michelle Savelle de Tremont, although not necessarily in that order, uh, just what is it that worries them about AI going forward? All right, so, um, Pat Lynn, what, what do you think? So what worries me about AI and robotics in the future? Well, I think we could start by saying that there's a lot of uh, overblown scenarios and worries that AI and robotics are going to run amok in the future and they're going to mess everything up, especially uh, there's a lot of talk about 
a lot of angst about military robots or quote-unquote killer robots. Now, uh, I'm not so concerned about those. I mean, you know, the the, the risk is not zero, but it's also uh, it also doesn't seem very likely. I mean, a lot of things would happen would have to go wrong in order for AI or or robots to to take over the world. Instead, I think there there are some near term issues that we should be worried about. Some more plausible, realistic issues. Um, some of these include uh, discrimination, for instance. So AI and robotics. I mean, these are technologies that that are still mysterious to us. Right, so they're they're like black boxes. We don't quite know how they work. Even the programmers themselves don't always know how they work. So, um, I mean, for one thing, technology today and AI is a, is a very very complex, you know, set of instructions. Um, I mean, long long gone are the days where a single programmer can sit down and bang out an entire program. If you look at something like Microsoft Word, you know, which is a you know, relatively simple program when you're talking about advanced AI. Um, even Microsoft Word takes teams of programmers to develop. So that means there's no one person who understands the uh, the whole code. There's no one person who has a single view of everything, which means there are a lot of moving pieces, a lot of pieces stitched together, and a lot of times it's it's – um, not well tested uh, or what not well known what's going to happen in the intersection of these different modules that different teams are writing so um, so yeah so so this contributes to the black box environment uh, that AI and robotics find themselves in, and they could go wrong in ways we don't expect, but they could also make decisions that are discriminatory right so AI and robotics. Uh, it's, it's not that they want to be racist or sexist, but uh, it may, just given the data that they're trained on, it may turn out that they make those kinds of decisions. There's some famous examples about, uh, you know, if, if you're a man and you go online and, uh, you know, you're, you're, looking, you're looking for a job, Google or another service might serve up ads uh, for you, a man, that are C-level jobs, right? CEO level or CFO, you know, top top level jobs. But if you're a woman and you know the browser the browser can divine this, then you're less likely to be shown uh, these high paying jobs. Um, there are also worries about a using AI in criminal sentencing. It tends to uh, uh, the latest research shows that it tends to be biased towards uh, people of color, for instance. Um, so I think there are some near-term worries uh, about uh, you know, about AI and robotics. There are also some mid-term worries, right? Some middle-distance worries, in that AI and robotics have a you know a really good shot at taking over a lot of jobs that human beings do, do today. So not just manual labor, not just things like truck driving, um, but I've, I've spoken to world-class economists, like some of the best economists in the world, and they're worried about their jobs. They, they, they easily see that uh, AI can read and process financial reports and, and figure out patterns and trends around the world 24-7. It could, it could scan all the latest research that's, that's coming out of economics and psychology and, and these other fields much better and much faster than a human economist could do, right? So even, even these highly skilled jobs are, are at risk. Um, I think the one saving grace, at least for, for us philosophers, is that 
you know, it, it's widely believed that the creative jobs, the jobs like philosophy and and value-laden jobs, um, you know, maybe psychology and, and other fields like that, those might be the last job standing because those kinds of uh, those kinds of jobs demand a certain kind of thinking that's not just mechanical but it's creative, and and that's really hard to reduce into code. So so I think. Uh, yeah, I think uh, we do have some real problems in the horizon in the near and midterm. Long, in the long term, who knows what's going to happen, right? I mean, yes, it's possible that there's some going to be some kind of AI apocalypse, just like it's possible that you know killer asteroid is going to come down and wipe, you know, wipe out humanity uh, in the next uh, 10 to 100 or 200 years. Um, I think uh, you know Winston Churchill might have said it might have said it best, which is to paraphrase. Uh, he said that it's a mistake to try to look too far into the future. The chain of destiny can be grasped only one link at a time. Let's hear what Mike Frost had to say. Okay, so I will tell you why uh, AI seems to be a problem for the future, or at least one that, uh, unless we start changing things, is going to be a problem. So AI has a significant link to the big concern about automating jobs. Uh, there are plenty of studies that you can look up now to see the percentage of jobs in which sectors are likely to receive full automation in the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, but what this really boils down, down to in terms of kind of sociological concern is that mostly we have defined, you know, citizens or people in a country, their value to that country based on economics and what they contribute in terms of work. Um, but we're fast approaching a situation where we actually don't need everybody to work. There's only a certain amount of work that is needed by any society. And we haven't done anything to change kind of our ethical or philosophical models the, about what do you do in a situation where you don't need people to work, but we still set up all of our rewards, the ability to feed your family, to obtain education, to get health care on your ability to work. To me, that's a serious ethical problem to consider. What do we do with a large segment of society that we don't even give them the chance to find work as their jobs become automated? There's nothing we need them to do, and they are condemned then not to participate in society, not to have the money to get the medical attention they need, not to be able to even feed themselves. So that's my growing concern with AI. I know there's a lot of concerns about killer robots and other things. But I think there's a very mundane concern that people really aren't going to be able to take care of their daily needs. Michelle Savelle de Tremont, what worries you about AI? Well, my main fear is that artificial intelligence will make human poetry obsolete. What I mean by that is that since artificial intelligence is now, now writing poetry, I'm afraid that human poets won't won't be wanted anymore, and that even the even the interactions that that humans have with artificial intelligence and in the process of writing poetry won't be wanted anymore. That that artificial intelligence ability to create poetry will be more will be preferred over human poetry. Does that make sense? J-Rod Garrett, what worries you about AI? The biggest problem with artificial intelligence in humans 
is specifically that when you consider AIs, we design AIs to solve problems. We design them so that they will look at all the angles of a problem so that they will get to the ultimate, the ultimate solution. As we get better with developing AI and come closer to developing AIs with closer to human intellect, we will also be developing machines that will outthink us. Humans as a whole do not tend to think to the end of problems. They get to a place with the problem and where they're comfortable with it, and then they stop. That's a very dangerous, that's a very dangerous thing. We do this with all sorts of things, whether the subject is politics, whether the subject is religion, whether the subject is morality. Once we're comfortable with what, what the solution is, we stop. As whereas the machines that we design, we design them to keep going until they get the best solution. And that is what terrifies me. Because what happens if the best solutions that we have been able to design are, are ultimately superseded by computers? What is our point anymore? Okay, thank you. So let's talk about what we're liking this week. Um, first thing, I want to give a, a shout out to Ken Altman, right? We talked to him last week um, about Thanos' decision, uh, one of the folks we interviewed. Um, come to find out that he's got a, a book series. It's called the Citadel series, available on Amazon. The first book is Black Moon Falling, and the second book is Hall of Nations. Haven't started reading them yet, but they they come well recommended and they they sound pretty good. So um, thanks for for the update on that. Uh, I've got another shout out. I'll shout out to uh, the What's Her Name podcast which you can get anywhere podcasts are found. Um, our friends Katie and Olivia do that one, and they're great. Yeah, really. It's it's a podcast that's uh, dedicated to women in history. Mm-hmm. And often women that you might not have heard of, um, but, but ought to have. I got the opportunity to sit down with them uh, and work on an episode where they interviewed me about Margaret Cavendish, and uh, that's... That's how I kind of came to be aware of their podcast, and I really enjoy it. Okay, so for the the, the pop culture um, this week, we, we didn't make it to the movies. Um, we've been watching a, a handful of shows, so we started watching the new season of The Deuce. Um, really loved the first season. So far, I've just seen the, the first episode of this season. It was um, started off kind of pedestrian, but you know, reacquainting us with all the same characters and sort of updating where they are. Um, so it looks very promising. Um, loving this season of Better Call Saul, and since we talked about this on our last episode, um, there's not much new stuff to report without revealing spoilers. Um, just we're saying this season's every bit as good as the earlier ones. I, I think the show just keeps getting better and better. Um, and then I'm really enjoying, I guess you are too probably, um, the new season of Shameless, right? It's mm-hmm. um, just more of the same. That show um, has been consistently good. Yeah. So hopefully we'll we'll um, get out to the movies. Um, what do we want to see? We want to see the nun. I want to see every scary movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, Halloween. Yeah. Um, boo, everybody. <laughs> We're going to be doing some Halloween themed episodes coming up. Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, we'll we'll go to the movies this week. We'll um, see something scary. We'll report on it, and then everything will be coming up sharp enough. Our listener musing this week comes from Joe. Uh, 
And Joe has the following to say. I'm going to break this up into two bits. We'll, I'll read uh, the first bit of it, and then we'll discuss it, and then I'll read the second bit, and we'll discuss it. We don't, we don't usually give the um, listener's full name, but I think in this case we can say this one comes from Joe the Mighty Prolific, which is a weird name in, in modern days, but um, <laughs> he, he's got a lot to say. It's great. Okay, so Joe says... I'm interested in the possible chicken and egg relationship between any given society's, one, common popular understanding of where the moral field might fairly be defined slash assessed from the perceived slack of permissiveness granted in the public sphere of said society, to the perceived stringency of censure as well, to put things broadly, and two, where the same society's pop culture, literature, songs, films, legends, etc., might be feeding those same mores. If the archetypes of a tale that's been won or successful or well-engaged overwhelmingly restate a similar, if not singular, narrative pattern over and over, as with such heroic tales as Odysseus, Robin Hood, King Arthur, and Zorro, are we seeing from these stories a reflection, the egg of what's already idealistically true to the innate ethical underpinnings, the chicken of a people? Or could those stories actually be the chicken instead? So. Yeah, that's interesting. So... Um... In our first episode, we talked about social contract theory and the state of nature. And one of the views that, that I presented was um, the view of Glaucon in Plato's Republic, where um, you know, morality just comes from this, this agreement that people in the state of nature make with one another um, because you know they're treating each other badly and they learn to stop. Joe's question, I think, highlights exactly what's wrong with Glaucon's approach, right? Um, the things in pop culture that do win, that, that take on a sort of life of their own, become legend or heroic, um, play, in my opinion, a vastly more influential role um, in shaping the way that we think and especially our moral reasoning than I think most people are inclined to give credit for. So my knee-jerk reaction to what Joe is saying is, um, yeah, pop culture is way more the chicken than you might think. I mean, there might be some real basic social contract kind of stuff that, that you know, precedes that. Um, but a lot of the color, flavor, texture of our sort of moral beliefs as, as different groups um, is certainly shaped and influenced by things in pop culture. And I think that the moral standards in television shows uh, allow us to explore in hypothetical fashion, our real set of moral standards. So, I mean, let's just take something like Breaking Bad, where, uh, well, things get pretty sketchy there toward the end, <laughs> about midway through toward the end. But at first, I mean, you're, this, this scenario you're being presented with causes you to reflect on things like uh, the nature of the healthcare system, um, right, right. the, the mor- moral status of the healthcare system, um, it gets you to think a little bit more carefully, perhaps, about people who are engaged in criminal behavior to make a living mm-hmm. um, and, and how we should assess that because we tend to paint those types of things with one brush. Um, and that's just one example. Right, right. Um, just a quick shout out to Dr. Pat Croskery, who um, would not agree with you that it starts out sort of okay. No, yeah, he's bad. It gets really bad. <laughs> he's bad the whole time. He, he thinks um, yeah, Walter White's bad just for having cancer, probably. And <laughs> no, I don't. I doubt that. Yeah, no, he doesn't hold that view. 
Uh, anyway, this is the inside joke part of the podcast <laughs> that we should rapidly move away from. Okay, so um, I want to read this other bit uh, from Joe's post. Okay, so he says, What concerns me about this question of this potential of man's culturally, adop- culturally adopted moral center showing itself to be more popularistically plastic than not is, what do we get... When the archetypal stories shift in popularity from heroes to anti-heroes, anti-heroes are nothing new, but one could make a case that we used to see a little bit more than a single compelling anti-hero per century with the likes of Hamlet, Don Quixote, Huckleberry Finn, and Holden Caulfield. That oversimplifies the case, I admit. But compare that thumbnail assessment for a moment with a similarly off-the-cuff list of contemporary examples of the anti-hero. Dirty Harry, Michael Corleone, Randall McMurphy, Travis Bickle, Han Solo, Tony Scarface, Montana, Al Bundy, Gordon Gecko, Batman, Severus Snape, Tony Soprano, Captain Jack Sparrow, and Dexter Morgan, and so on. Uh, so, let's see. We may now be witnessing a unique cultural moment where our shared story spaces become remarkably saturated in the span of a single generation with such a glut of popularly received incarnations of the self-interested rogue. Bye-bye, Superman. Hello, Deadpool. Nice. Yeah. Um, I, um, I don't know what I have to add to that. I, I think that's a spot-on take by, by Joe. Well, do you, think, uh, do you think that that's a point of concern? The t- do you think that that poses a, a genuine threat? I, I guess it might. I, I mean, I'm more inclined to think... That it that it sort of reflects nicely on us that that we're not as sort of simple-minded as consumers of entertainment as we once were, right? I mean, just so you know, we go back to um, you know Byzantine times in art, um, where you know the expectation is we're going to paint scenes from the Bible, and all the different characters have the role to play, you know. Baby Jesus is the one that makes eye contact and so forth. And, and this is what art does. Um, and as we move into the Renaissance and into Impressionism and more abstract forms of art, um, we really countenance many different kinds of things. And and some would say, well, but gosh, you know, this Jackson Pollock just isn't as beautiful as this, this Da Vinci here. On the one hand, on the other hand, um, it makes us reflective as a society in ways that I think are just fascinating, right? It allows us to, to sort of go beyond where we are. Um, and the, the, you know, advent of the sort of, you know, ubiquitous um, modern anti-hero um, has us exploring things that, that the, you know, melodramas of the 1930s and 40s could just never get at. So, yeah, you know, in some ways it, it might reflect reflect poorly on us um you know my grandfather would go out for the evening in hopes of seeing some shakespeare and mm. you know i i like it when deadpool makes really bad jokes so <laughs> on the other hand what we're getting is so much richer it could be the case uh, one potential concern is if if we started to see that young people were genuinely taking these characters to be role models then that might mm-hmm. be something we'd yeah, that, I mean, think about. but then again, there's no, you know, that it, even if that were the case, censorship wouldn't be the answer. So right, 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 and and you have to do the comparison with the the other role models, right? So, um, you know, the Mad Max movie comes out, and I've got a handful of students that are emulating that. Um, 
you know, 15 years or so ago, I had a whole bunch of students walking around dressed like Neo in the Matrix and <laughs> thought it'd be cool to be, um, you know, hackers or something. I even had a long trench coat when that movie came out. Yeah, <laughs> I, I probably did too. Um, but, you know, let's go back to, I mentioned my grandfather, you know, his generation, you know, so he's sitting at home watching Father Knows Best and um, thinking, I'm the Lord of my manor and my wife will yeah. do what I say. Right. And, you right. know, so, so we're, there may be some problems with the antihero, but we're also, there are certain th- themes in pop culture that aren't, just aren't deemed acceptable anymore that that are advances right and what counted as a traditional hero might not have been that great yeah. right um yeah well, all thanks, right Joe. yeah thank you very much all right well that's a wrap episode four is in the can i'd like to thank our guests dr pat lynn mike frost michelle Savale de tremont and j rod garrett what do we have on the docket for next week's episode well it's october so it's time for spooky episodes. Uh, I all my favorite podcasts do a healthy number of scares, like Halloween themed episodes through the month of October. So I thought we'd do the same. So next week we're going to be talking about philosophical themes pertaining to uh, the undead. Mm-hmm. <laughs>